Zig Ziglar said, money isn't everything, but it ranks right up there with oxygen. So often when people hear this conversation about money versus fulfillment, I don't want people to, to think that it's either or, that oh, I have to choose money or I choose fulfillment. No. I said to Jack Canfield once, I want to do this for the world and I don't even care about the money. He's like, well, slow down. Always allow for the possibility of money. So it's not that money's evil, it's survival. So I honor that part of each one of us that says, I need to make more money. The main reason I want money in the bank, financial peace, peace of mind. That's the main reason. I've got everything that I really want. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with David Wood and dive deep into Hats 1 and 4, The Soul and the Entrepreneur, as we take our attention away from the elephant in the room and focus on the mice. A former consulting actuary to Fortune 100 companies such as Sony Music, Procter & Gamble, and Exxon, David left his cushy Park Avenue job 20 years ago to explore the outer and inner worlds. David is a world-renowned coach, author, actor, stand-up comic, and an overall stand-up guy with much wisdom to share. Jack Canfield said, David walks his talk. I admire his willingness to put himself in the fire and do what it takes to take that next step. So if you're ready to look at your mice and do what it takes to make that next step, let's welcome David to The Seven Hats. David, welcome to The Seven Hats. Thanks, Yuval. I'm glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to see what comes out in the shared field here between us. I love it. I love it. You know, it's not very often, often that I get to speak with the number one ranking life coach on Google. You know, someone who is operating at the top of their game. You know, you're a 20-year veteran in the coaching arena, and you work with some of the most incredible high performers in the world. And now you're here to drop those golden nuggets that you've picked up along the way on your journey and help the seven hatters, that's what we call our audience, achieve their best life. But before we get there, your upbringing must tell us a story that compelled you to seek out this life mission of yours. And as I often say, there are no accidents, but many obstacles along the way. And the seven hatters, are eager to learn about your beginnings. So David, where were you born and how is your childhood like? Thank you. And I want to make a, just a, a correction, clarification, that number one on Google is a historical feat. I did do that. I reached like number one out of 23 million results. It takes a lot to stay at the top and I could not be bothered. 
doing everything. So that's, you know, you go searching for it now, it's not number one, but that's something that I did achieve and I'm, I'm feeling proud of because it wasn't easy to do. But yeah, the origin story, I grew up shutting down my emotions and I didn't know that. I just, I had a tragedy when I was seven years old. My little sister was killed and I was there and I witnessed it. Mm. And no, no one knew back then, oh, we should send him to therapy. We should talk about it. It was like, no, let's protect him. I didn't get to go to the funeral. We didn't talk about it. They did have me sit down with a priest at one point. And so what happened is I grew up very left-brained. That's the silver lining, perhaps. I got good at numbers, business, money, and systems. I came top of my school. I got a scholarship, so I got paid to go to college. I didn't rack up debts. College was actually free. That's how much privilege I, w I was born into. College was free, and I got paid to go. And then when I got out, a job was waiting for me if I wanted, but I wasn't contractually obligated. Wow. And where were you born? I was born in Cessnock, a little town uh, near Sydney, Australia. Oh, wow, Sydney, Sydney, Australia. Okay, that's where I, I knew. I was trying to figure the accent, and, and I just never want to you know, go with English versus Australian. Just for me, it's, it's hard, but I, I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I can do American if you prefer. I do an American accent. <laughs> oh, yeah. You do? Okay, great. I love it. So what were your parents doing? What did they do? My father was a plumber. And my mm -hmm. mother was a high school teacher. Got it. And so what was the expectation when you were growing up? What did they I, want you to do? I think they wanted me to go to, to uh, university. We had one person in our extended family who'd done that. No, no wow. one else had, had done it. Wow, I've never told this story. Actually, I've done 300 plus interviews, but no one's asked me this. There was one guy that had done it, and, they, and, and I was doing well at school, so the expectation was you go to university. But they didn't have anything they were pushing me towards. That wasn't like, we want you to be this, or we want you to be that. It was just, we, we want you to go to university. And we assumed I would be an accountant because I was really good at math. That was my best subject, and I loved it, and I excel. So, I am such a nerd, Yuval. I self-confessed nerd, for sure. And so we're going to do that. And then my mother discovered this other profession that most people have never heard of called an actuary. And it seemed that it was a lot harder to qualify than accountancy. And you got a lot more money once you qualified. And for anyone who knew what it was, there was more prestige associated with it. So we're like, well, why don't we do that? And then we found out there were scholarships for that because there was such short supply of actuaries companies were paying promising nice. kids to go through college and then hoping they would choose to work with them when it was done. So I was in the cat seat for sure. Wow. You know, it's funny. I was, um, my first job was in the benefits arena and actuary is a huge part in that field. Dude, that was my specialty. I, was, I did pension funds. So did I. 401k pension. Yep. Dude. Cash balance. Dude. You wow. see? There we go. Yeah, that was my thing. I did it for, for international companies that had to look at what was going on in like 50 different countries. But that was my nerdy little niche pension. I, I, pro I processed the 401k payments for the 70,000 Bank America employees. I was literally <laughs> the one creating the NAV understatement for that well, in terms so can, of valuing, we, valuing their, their, uh, their benefits. Well, I could totally nerd out with you on that. But I want to say... You know, 
this was good in that I was here on Park Avenue. I got a transfer to Park Avenue and consulting with Sony Music, Ford and Exxon. And I'm thinking, I got it made. I got an office. They promoted me to consultant at like, what, 26, I think. Yep. But the thing is, I wasn't happy. Why weren't you happy? I didn't know at the time. All I knew is that I was frustrated. I didn't really know why. And I had a pain in my gut. Mm. And I went to the doctor and the doctor said it was seems like stress. I said, no, I'm not stressed. I got a pain in my gut. It just it hurts. And my marriage wasn't going well. So someone suggested I go and do a personal growth program. Thank God I got past the fact that they all wore name tags and they smiled way too much. Because I'm like, this is some cult and I didn't believe in self-help. I thought it was just people who couldn't think for themselves. And I had all these judgments. But I got in and they cracked my heart open and they cracked my cynicism. And I got that making a difference in the world is a real job. Yeah. You can actually do that. And I didn't know it. And then every, uh, and then I went and did a second course and a third course. And every time they would encourage me to find those parts of me that I was hiding and bring those out into the world constantly. And it was hard. And it was scary. And I had really difficult conversations, but I got to practice it. I got to practice being me in the world at work, being me with my wife, being me with my friends and with potential customers, and life got better. So when did you quit your job to start becoming I, a coach? I quit my job eight, eight years after I started the journey to become an actuary. I think I qualified about six years into that, six or seven years into that, I qualified after blood, sweat and tears. And then a year later, I resigned. And your parents said what when you told them that you are becoming a coach? Well, I didn't tell them that. I said, I'm quitting. I'm coming back to Australia and I'm going to play guitar in pubs and parties and sing and dress up with wigs and kilts. Love and, it. And I'm going to, I want to be an entertainer for a while. And you know what? I never got one negative word from either parent. I love it. It's great. Yeah. I'd always, I thought, well, if, I, if I'm going to quit and then get a new job in Australia, which was fairly guaranteed with the same company, what would I do? Like if you had six months to do anything in life, what would you do? And I'd always love those guys at the ski fields that were singing and got the whole crowd singing Piano Man. And yeah. I was like, I want to do that. So I did that. And my parents supported me the whole, they're like, okay, great. They love telling the story to their friends. He was consulting to these big companies in New York. Now he's doing this. And then I discovered that coaching was a profession. Yeah. And I'd already was sold on the difference it can make on your life and your business, so I went and trained as a coach, resigned from the Institute of Actuaries, let that go forever. Talk about letting go of the safety net or letting go of the shore for the open sea and embarked on a life of catching up on the things I didn't know about. I sat with gurus and I learned about being vulnerable. I learned about sharing the things that I still was hiding. Over and over, it was being more of you in the world and life got better and business got better. And I had all these opportunities like speaking to a thousand people at T. Harv Eker's event and getting nominated to the Transformation Leadership Council, which I think still only takes five members a year. 
and it was like, oh my god, that's Campbell's, right? Joseph Jack, Campbell's, Jack Canfield, I mean, Jack, uh, Jack Jack Canfield, sorry, Jack yeah, Canfield. Jack Canfield. So that's Jack Canfield stuff, yep. and John Gray and Marianne Williamson and Don Miguel Ruiz, yep. people who wanted to come together and have a place to recharge as as family, and I'm honored to be a part of it. But I tell you, no way it could happen without a life of mouse naming. And I'll get to yeah. why I call it we'll mouse naming. We'll talk about that, yeah. And then when I got to, to Boulder, Colorado, I found out that after 20, 25 years of training, communication, vulnerability, authenticity, transparency, and leadership, there were still missing pieces. They showed me in Boulder how to check for impact. When mm. you say something to someone, hey, how is it to hear that? I'm just curious, how does that land? Do you feel inspired or angry or defensive or something else? I didn't have that language. That was a game changer. Yeah. Sharing my, like I thought I was great at sharing my experience, but I often didn't know what was happening in my body. I often didn't know what emotion was going on. So how am I gonna share my experience in the moment with somebody? They taught me how to do that and then finally one day, when someone in a course just started ranting, she said, oh my God, you've just got to name the thing. And we all looked at her. She's like, you've got to name the thing. What do you mean? Name the thing, just name the thing. And then, you know, as we dug deeper, she was saying things like, you might have a feeling that's going on and you haven't even named it. The person's got no idea. You might." be tense in your shoulders or you got pain in your foot or you didn't sleep well or you're worried about how this meeting's going to go. You want to put your best foot forward. Whatever's happening in the room, you've got to name it. Maybe you don't even have to fix it. You just name it. And I was like, that's a book. I love it. So let's so let's get this go a little bit back before we get to the book. Let's get a little bit. Let's go. Let's go back. I have a question. So so many entrepreneurs believe that financial achievement is where it's at, right? That all their problems will somehow, you know, disappear once they achieve a successful exit. And at some point, you were that person. You started by, you know, helping huge companies make money. Yep. But somewhere along your journey, you know, probably at that conference, you realize that true fulfillment has little to do with the notion of acquiring more financial wealth, right? right? So you then, I believe, changed course, and now you dedicated your life going from these Fortune 500 or 100 companies to really helping people, individual people, have better lives. You know, not yeah. just by, not. I mean, the thing is, the bottom line is the bottom line, but that requires a change in mindset, your own personal mindset. It meant that you needed to learn, like you said, vulnerability, true intimacy, you know, accountability, uh, showing up you know, as your true self to the world and everyone around you. So that required a deep dive into your soul, I think, so you could master these skills and traits. I want you to tell us about that journey. You know, what did you find out about yourself in the process of switching from this corporate coach to a life shifter coach? Thank you, I, lo- I love the question. And I wanna clarify, I do work with individuals. I, I work with business owners and executives, but I also work with companies. I still do, but instead of, here's how you're gonna make more money directly, 
It's mm -hmm. here's how you're going to have everyone be way happier to be there at the co company and work well together and love their life and their job. And that will make you more money. So yep. that's the shift. And yeah, how did it happen? Look, you bring up such a huge point about money. Zig Ziglar, I think it was him, said money isn't everything, but it ranks right up there with oxygen. <laughs> right? Yes. So often when people hear this conversation about money versus fulfillment, I don't want people to, to think that it's either or, that oh, I have to choose money or I choose fulfillment. No. I said to Jack Canfield once, I want to do this for the world and I don't even care about the money. He said, well, slow down. <laughs> Always allow for the possibility yes. of money, right? So it's not that money's evil and it's, it's survival. So I honor that part of each one of us that says, I need to make more money. I want to have the main reason I want money in the bank, financial peace. Peace of mind. That's the main reason. I've got everything that I really want, but peace of mind. So yes, do that. So when people come to me, it's not like, okay, money's evil. We're going to work on you and your happiness. No, let's work on making, you know, doubling your revenue because that's going to take the pressure off so that we can look at what matters more once you have the money. Now, if you've already got 70,000, 100,000, 150,000 a year, then you might want to start making the shift. Yeah. Now, if you're not making 70,000, okay, focus on that. But yeah. once I got it, one client came to me and said, look, I've got enough money to be happy. Let's work on me. Yeah. And sometimes the business stuff <laughs> comes up. So the people who come to me have realized if I get to my deathbed, just going the way I am, I'm probably going to be pissed. Yeah. I'm probably going to look back and say, okay, I made money. I did this in my work, but did I share myself with the world? Did I speak up when something didn't work? Did I tell people that I love them often? Did I ask for what I wanted, even when I was terrified to ask for it? Did I say no to the things that didn't work? That's what I believe will lead to regret on the deathbed. And I don't want that for anyone. So let's jump in right now and shift the pattern and start naming those things that are, that are inside us. And, and I'll, I'll show you how. There's a simple roadmap of how to do it. Yep. It'll change your life. People yep. won't even know what's happened. They'll just know they wanna be around you more. So what transformation happened internally in your life when you started working with individuals on a holistic approach rather than just financial? Yeah, thank you. So I love that you're bringing it back to the personal versus just talking about it. And you had also asked, how did I make the shift from financial to something yes. else? That one was actually more subtle. It wasn't a, an epiphany. It wasn't a flash of light and Moses stepped into a dream and gave me extra commandments. It was more, oh, well, I'm going to quit my job and I'll do this. I'll, do, I'll, I'll go and do this guitar thing and singing. And then it was, I met a coach. And I'm like, oh, for a year I've been thinking about that. Let's do that. And that was just so natural for me. I've never stopped. And then, well, speaking looks scary. Let's do that. 
I tend to lean into whatever I'm afraid of. It's called counterphobic. And Love so, I, I, you know, paragliding looks scary. We'll, we'll go and do that. And then recently, I think it was eight months ago, I realized, you know, for 10 years, I've had a desire mouse, which will make more sense when we talk about it. I got a desire yeah. mouse to do acting. I've always wondered what would happen if I really dove into it. And someone heard me speak and said, I did that. And then so we talked, she said, I moved to LA. So we started talking a week later. She says, do you want to come to an audition with me? I'm going to audition for Dracula, a play. And I'm like, uh, I haven't even taken a class yet, but I yes, love it. yes. And one thing led to another. They cast me as the lead. I played Dracula in a paid performance. Fast forward to today. I just moved to Los Angeles three weeks ago to fully dive into, well, not fully, I'm still coaching and training and launching the book, but I'm an actor now and a paid actor. So that's an example. Those are some examples of how it wasn't a flash of light. It wasn't, it was just following the intuition and saying, look, I will still work on money. Oh yeah, don't worry about it. My mind is still like tracking that and doing things and whatever. And I hope the book makes a fortune. But there's also another part saying, if I was to die in five years, would I change anything about how I'm living? That's the magic question I want everyone to answer. A paragliding, acting actuary. I don't know if I've seen that combination before, but I love that. All right, so David, this this is interesting. So thank you for that. I, I really love, again, the vulnerability of, of helping us understand the transformation because there's so many individuals out there who work in the corporate world. They want to escape the corporate world. They want to do something fulfilling in their life, whether it's business or acting or paragliding or whatever it is that they want to do, but they're so scared in their little bubble. And I think just hearing you and others that I've interviewed just take that leap and find success in whatever that next journey is, is inspiring. And I, and I hope that those that are feeling stuck, that are not loving you know, where they are right now, will at least consider that there's other opportunities. But you, know, you work with many leaders, and I think this is an important topic that I'd like to cover. You know, I'm sure that you, know, you have thought a lot about this topic, and the topic is core values. You know, this question is in two parts. First, do you think we might not even truly understand the true definition of a core value? Perhaps we think core values are defined as something that we care about. But in reality, right, what we care about changes every day and every minute. So that doesn't really represent what a core value is. So perhaps you can define core values. And secondly, how important are core values to entrepreneurs and leaders, you know, trying to play at the top of their game? And, and the reason I'm asking the question about core values so everybody understands, is it leads into the work that you do now. And I think it's so important to get the basics out of the way and the, and, and the foundation you know, um, detailed and understood. Okay, so definition of a core value and how does it help leaders? Mm-hmm. To me, a core values are those guiding lights that you keep coming back to. They're those things that you, throughout your life, you've been constantly drawn to. It will show up in the choices you make and what you do. I place a high value on having a, a quiet, safe nest. 
Mm. So you look back at all the places I've lived in, they've all been special in some way. It's something they really, really, and I value quiet. So it shows up, like you often just look back at your life and see what you've done and then you look at what you're doing. It should show you. I've been drawn towards performance. I have a value, high value on communication and self-expression. It's huge. I have a high value on play. I'm a prankster. I'm playful. I'm funny as hell. Actually, (laughs) I've done a lot of improv. I've done stand-up comedy. I was constantly drawn towards communicating and transformation. And then, and you know, sometimes you find this stuff out when you work with a coach and someone can reflect back to you. I didn't realize for years I have a core value on courage. Wow. I'm inspired seeing someone do something they're scared of. I'm inspired and proud. I just got up in front of my acting class and presented on stage in a theater, a 16 minute Aaron Sorkin scene from A Few Good Men. Terrified, terrified. I have a value on doing those things. And so it it shows up. Now, sometimes you can't see it because you're so close to it. So and how and, and how important is it to a leader to identify those core values, right? In order to achieve the highest success, do you think you can achieve the highest levels of success without really truly focusing and understanding your core values? I think you can because it might be subconscious. Hmm. It might be subconscious. You just go from intuition. You know, for 20, 30 years, I was very successful in many, many areas without being able to name this is something I do. Now when I look back and I've done 300 plus interviews, I get to, I get to discover, oh, right. Now here's why it's so useful. There are many, many uses for, for a leader. Once you know yourself, oh, I have a value on that. I have a value on that, value on that. That tells you your biases. I'm biased towards this. I'm biased towards honest self-expression and being even blunt. Mm-hmm. Now that I know that, I can tell people. In fact, when you use the word bias, it kind of, there's almost a negative slant on it. So it's almost like a confession. Look, I'm just biased towards this because that's who I am. Like, oh, okay. Or I have a real value on, on, on clarity and this doesn't seem clear. You can let people know why you're doing what you're doing and where you're coming from. The other thing in my coaching sessions, I find it very useful to know what someone places a value on because when they come up with a project they want to do and it doesn't align with what I know they care about, I'd be like, tell me how that might lead to fulfillment. Like, what would you get out of it? And maybe we find it will meet one of those values or it doesn't and then they can drop it and save themselves six to 12 months of pain. Hmm. That's an example off the top of my head. Yeah, I love that. You know, let's go back for a second. You mentioned a scenario when somebody dies with regret. That's kind of the last question that I want to ask before getting into the book. You know, Wayne Dyer had a quote that touched me, you know, many years back. He said, don't die with your music still in you. You know, it was a very powerful quote. You know, I watched one of your videos where you mentioned that 90% of people die with regret. And luckily for us, (laughs) you work with the 10% that don't. So, if the stats are correct, right, and this is kind of sobering, I think, for everybody listening, 
many, and stats are stats, you're an actuary, you know, many of our seven hatters might be part of that statistic listening right now, you know? And now I know this is a broad topic and I'm not trying to solve it in, in, in a conversation or in a question, but what can we do now to get on the path so that we are part of that 10% and we don't end up dying with our music still on? Is there anything that we can at least start focusing on to get ourselves into geeking out about how to do better there? Yeah. I mean, that quote, don't die with your music still in you. For me, that means you, yeah, yeah, maybe that music still in you could be a big dream you have. Maybe it's acting or singing or studying something or five languages or swimming with dolphins, you know, maybe it's something like that. Yeah. But also that music in you could be your feelings that haven't been expressed, your desires that haven't been expressed, the things you want to say no to, things you yeah. want to ask for, the things you feel shame about. Those, these are the things I call mice. Don't yeah. die with your mice still in you. It doesn't have to be yeah. these big dreams, but your music yeah. is you. Yeah. And I haven't said that before, but I love that metaphor. I love that. And I you, love it, and, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And then your question is, how do you do it? How do you get on that path so you don't die with yeah. your music in you? Let me introduce the concept because I need to speak about mouse naming. So we've okay. called the book Mouse in the Room because the elephant isn't alone. And the way it came out is, you know, someone in this course was like, you've got to name the thing. You've got to name the thing. Whatever's going on between you that hasn't been named, you must name it. There's power in that. And after she ranted for five minutes, I was like, name the thing. Someone should write a book on that. <laughs> it's a powerful, fundamental concept that will change a life, a company and the world. Naming what's happening might be just in you. That's why it's not an elephant. An elephant, you see it, I see it, no one's saying anything. But many animals in the room are much more subtle. And I call these mice. So the pathway to confidence, connection, and badass leadership and success is to identify, discover your mice, discover what's going on. Oh, I don't like it. All we might know is I don't like it, or I don't like him, or I don't like her, or I'm frustrated, or I find I'm complaining to Sally at the water cooler. That's a clue. You've got a mouse on your hands. It hasn't been named. So the book is designed to help you discover your mice. That's the number one reason mice don't get named. You don't even know. You're like me growing up in Australia, jumping to left brain solutions and not being aware of, oh, I'm feeling this. I'm wanting this. My body's doing this. So the book will help you discover what's actually happening. Oh, I've got a desire mouse. I've got a confession mouse. You know what? I got a toleration mouse on my hands. Okay. Then it will help you decide if it's a mouse worth naming. Now, don't take this as license to just say, oh, no, I'm just going to skip that one because it's going to be awkward. No, stop doing that. Stop skipping the awkward ones because those are the best ones. So I, I estimate that we're naming about 10 to 20% of our mice. And what wow. I'm encouraging in the book, once you have the roadmap, is to name about 80% of your mice. And the third part of the 3D process, 
that I've created is to disarm the person so that they're ready to receive it. Once you've decided, okay, I've gotten clear, this is, these are my mice, I've decided to go name them, now I'm gonna use this process to disarm the other person so that they're ready to receive it and we have an amazing conversation. That's the book in a nutshell. I love it. You know, do you mind if I geek out and be nerdy for a second? Oh, please, one nerd to another, let's go. So when I was, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Okay. okay. Of course, this is a ubiquitous saying in our language, but I never took the time to understand the origins. So preparing for this interview, I did just that. So for those who always wanted to know where the idiom came from, here it is. The first reference, David, that I can find was from 1814. It was a poet. Uh, his name was Ivan I, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Krilov. He wrote a fable titled The Inquisitive Man, which tells a story of a man who goes to a museum and notices all sorts of tiny things but fails to notice the elephant. And then there was a reference in the New York Times in 1959. Mark Twain was referenced. Uh, I think he wrote a story called The Stolen White Elephant. And then, of course, the most widely referenced comes from a 1935 musical, which I think you'd appreciate, being the lover of art. Uh, it was a musical named Jumbo, uh, in which a police officer stopped one of the characters, I believe, and that character was leading an elephant, a, a live elephant, and the officer asked, what are you doing with that elephant? And his response was, what elephant? And then the rest was history. So that became the elephant in the room, at least from my research. I don't know if you've ever done the research. I did look it up. I did, I did look it up and <clears throat> I found that yeah, someone had put it in a play and there's a reference to it and then it, we need that expression in our culture. And the reason we need it is because we suck at naming what's happening. Most of us just terrible. We, wa yeah. we go watch movies so we can see people not naming they're mice and it creates yeah. the tension. And then finally, towards the end of the movie, there's resolution, the mice are named, they come into reality with each other in connection. We watch movies for that because we suck at it. You so I love this expression, the elephant in the room, because it points out that there are big things going on that we just, just pay no attention to that, we'll keep on going. It's like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, there's a guy behind the curtain and he's doing this big song and dance with this wizard and smoke and whatever. And he's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We are the people behind the curtain and it's time to pull the curtain back and say, hey, yes, there's an elephant in the room and I'd like to talk about it. And so many animals in the room are much more subtle. It may not be an elephant that you obviously see. I don't even know if you see it. So I've called them mice so that we, it, can, it can be less threatening. They're not as big as an elephant, but they still want to be named. But I found it so, so interesting that you selected mice as the metaphor because, you know, I don't know if you know this old wife's tale, and I think they've actually proven that it's true, that elephants are extremely fearful of mice. So was there a correlation between you calling the insignificant little thing that no one talks about mice versus the elephant or did you just is it just happenstance that the elephant and mice are so 
you know, spoken to in, in relations? I thought it was a nice uh, connection. You know, when you think, you know, you see an elephant and a mouse together, it's kind of a cute image and it's the juxtaposition. Yeah. Which is why, because I, I could have called this addressing the elephant in the room. Yeah. It totally have called, called it that. But I want people to realize there are so many animals in the room that they, they even, they themselves haven't seen. Oh, I didn't realize I'm upset because of this. I didn't realize that I want this. I just had a complaint. I didn't realize that's what was going on. They're quite small. And that's yeah. why mice, a mouse is such a great thing. Plus the mouse is quite cute. We've got some lovely illustrations of, of, of the eight different kinds of mice we've identified in the book. And that was really fun. You know, like yeah. here's a desire mouse and here's a confession mouse and here's a toleration mouse. And we categorize them to help people discover them. Oh, huh. what are my desire mice? I'll make a list. What are my toleration mice? Let me ask you a question then. So, you know, you, you rattled off a, a bunch of mice, which is great, but are there, are they in sort of relative importance to each other? Are there mice that are more significant uh, to the betterment of the individual or the ability to, you know, perform as a leader or perform as, a, as someone who excels? Tell us if there are any mice that somebody would want to look at first or think about first in order to address? Well, the easiest ones just to start to get access might be the, the well, all of them could be tricky to find, all mm. of them. And I don't really place one against another, uh, above another in terms of value. They're, they're all a part of you. And so when they get named, the other person gets to come into connection with you. It doesn't matter what type of mouse it is. Now, if you, you might want to start with desire mice, get a piece of paper and just write, what are my desires? What are my desires around my living situation, around my finances? What are my desires with my partner? Do I have desires with my, my kids? Do I have desires for my boss, my coworker? Let's, this is the kind of thing that a coach might br help bring out, but you can do it with a piece of paper. Also, maybe even easier than desires, what are you putting up with? These are toleration mice. So get a piece of paper, what's pissing you off, what's annoying you, what's bugging you, what's keeping you up at night. People can often get easier access to what they don't want than what they want. So maybe start with tolerations and then you can work out what you actually want. My friend Kendra Kunov says, a complaint is a lazy desire. Mm. So you work out your tolerations, you work out your desires. I think there's huge value. Okay, okay, maybe I do have a favorite mouse. <laughs> there's huge value in confession mice. Oh, I love because that. Because we all have some sense of shame. We all grew up with some kind of shame, even if it's subconscious. And it's bigger for some than for others. And Brene Brown says, shame is a public problem so it needs a public solution you can't heal your shame in the shadows so any area we've got a bit of embarrassment oh you know i wouldn't want my partner to know that about me there's value in a confession mouse 
there's value wow. in going to your boss and saying, I screwed up and maybe no one's ever gonna know, but I know and I, I wanna tell you and I wanna make it right. There's value wherever there's all that charge. So the scariest mice for you to name, biggest payoff. I love it. You know, it's funny, the biggest payoff, you mentioned Brene Brown. Let's talk about Brene Brown because I love her so much. Brene Brown talks about the power of vulnerability, right? And we all want to fit in, in a sense, uh, no matter if we're a leader or if we're not a leader, right? It's all about what should I say or be or, you know, here's what I shouldn't say or avoid talking about it, and here's what I should dress like and blah, 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 right? Yeah. Now, these pressures are real for most of us humans, especially in the workforce, I think but it's in our DNA, right? So these mice that you're talking about, you know, they're as scary to humans as they are to the elephants, as I was saying, but Bernays yeah. says that, yeah, so, but Bernays says that being who we really are is much more powerful than belonging. That means that we need to stand in our truth. So do you believe that becoming vulnerable and truthful will set us free, number one, and allow us to freedom to grow as individuals and as leaders? And if so, how is that and which mouse are we addressing and how do we address it? Hmm. Yeah, that vulnerability. Can you say the last part of the question? I loaded up something awesome I wanted to say and then it just zipped out of my head. Um, I started it, it, thinking it's about more, an example. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, it's more about uh, becoming vulnerable, becoming truthful of, to who we are Oh, rather right. than pretending to be to get someone else. Like us. Yeah. Correct. So Mark Manson from The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... I don't know if I can say the full title here. Yeah, um, please do. Can I swear? The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, uh, which is a wonderful book. Mark Manson says, and I might be paraphrasing, the more you try to get people to like you, the less they will. Mm. So it's kind of rough. We want to belong. The more we try to belong the less people see us and they can just feel the, the clinginess and the feel the desperation and feel like you're willing to mold yourself to, to just belong. They sense it. So it's counterintuitive and scary to say, can I trust that me being me is enough? Hmm. Can I trust that if I share on a podcast that I've been dealing with anxiety and depression for 20 years, that I'll still be okay? And there'll still be plenty of people who want to work with me and get support from me. So as you were asking the question, I thought about when I sat with Jack Canfield at a luncheon and I was so freaked out and excited that I got to sit next to him. I beat out the hundred other people that were trying to sit next to him. And I'm sitting next to Jack. I'm like, it's Jack Canfield, my God. And I was writing <laughs> my first book at the time. And I wanted to ask him if he'd write the foreword. Wow. How many requests would Jack Canfield get a day from Chicken Soup to, to write the forward to a book? But more than that, I had a mouse on my hands. I had a, like a confession mouse because I had already asked Richard Branson. And if he said yes, I wanted to go with him. So I kind of wanted to ask Jack. Anyway, I said to Jack, look, I have a bold request. I wonder if you would consider taking a look at my book and seeing if it's something worth putting your name to. And I want to be upfront. I've asked Richard Branson 
And if he says, yes, I'm going to go with that. If he doesn't, <laughs> I wonder if you would write it. And so I'm asking you a big, bold request if you would be my backup. And classic Jack Canfield said, well, you're going alphabetically. I, I understand that. <laughs> anyway, one thing led to another and Jack so generously did put his name to that book. And I don't know if you can see on the cover here of the book that's coming out, Mouse in the Room, again, a second time, Jack took a look at the book and said, yes, I will do it. Now, I believe that if I just tried to be like everybody else and blow smoke up his butt or do whatever's going to, and not tell the truth, yeah, particularly I when that. I knew I could lose something, I don't think I would stand out as a person of integrity, which is what I hope I show up as, because that's my aim. Keep taking risks. You will lose stuff. You'll lose some friends. You will lose, you might lose a project. You will lose some stuff. But I suggest that that's the stuff you're supposed to lose and it will create a space for the people and the opportunities and the love and the business and the success that you truly want to come to you. Mm. I echo that. And I think so many entrepreneurs feel that vulnerability is, they feel that they lose power by being vulnerable. And that's totally the opposite. Because ultimately, if you approach a client and tell them, look, I'm not going through a, you know, a good time right now. And I need a week or two or three to get my shit together. It's way better than trying to finagle it, right? Or if you speak with a friend or a coworker, address situations maybe about mental illness, maybe about stress, maybe about depression or, or burnout. When you put yourself out there as a leader and you become human, I think that's what I'm trying to say. It changes you as a leader because it shifts you from being someone who people follow because they, they work for you to people follow because they believe that you can take them someplace and that you would take care of them. And I think the mice that you mentioned and all of the aspects of your book, which I've read, you know, some of it, I was lucky enough to do so. And I'll, I'll get the, the, the full book to read because I think it was great. It's incredible to address these specific issues because not many people are talking about it. They're only talking about the big things and the little things, like you said, matter way more in the long term, in the long run. It's like those little actions you take every day that, that are insignificant, yeah. right? Gets you so much further than the big you know, goals that you try to accomplish on a monthly basis. It's that consistency, you know, the found, laying the foundation, I think through the mice, if you add enough mice, it will overrun the elephant, you know, by far, and you'll have yeah. a much better time for success. Yeah. Vulnerability is sexy. Yeah, I love that. It's, vulnerability is sexy. I, you know, hearing you speak, I thought about a landmark education forum leader who got up on stage and after three days he said, I'm terrified of people. Mm. <laughs> and I was, firstly, I was like, you can say that? <laughs> what? You can't, you got to present that you're confident. You can say that. And secondly, you've been talking for two days on stage, dude. And I got a sense of what it took for this guy to show up and make a difference in the world, given he, he's terrified of people and he's a speaker. So, and then another example that came to me is 
the head of Colorado prisons, director uh, Dean Williams, came to sit in on one of the trainings we were doing in a prison. And he spoke for 10 minutes and I was thinking, I would follow you anywhere. He shared a personal, he shared about his vision. He said, I can't do it alone. I'm trying to turn around a big ship and I got resistance at every corner. I need your help. He's talking to the inmates. I need the help of every one of you. Wow. Are you with me? And then he shared a personal story. Uh, and I was like, and the dignity of the man, this is what's possible. So one of the things, uh, one of the words I want to get on the cover of this book is, it's your pathway to connection, confidence, and becoming the badass leader that people want to follow. I love that. Yeah, I love that. All right, David. So that was so interesting. And I just, I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question, okay? Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I needed to stop being the guy who had it all together or wanted the whole world to figure that he had it all together and he was a rock star. I had to be someone who is that, but also is the opposite. I had to crash actually, get right to, to, to rock bottom and then get rebuilt. I didn't have this book, but I had Landmark. Who I had to become was someone willing to risk pulling back the curtain and naming, naming my mice with people, especially when it was difficult, especially when I thought I might lose something. It's that courage that will have you stand out from everybody else as simply you. Mm. I love your courage. I love who you are as a person. I think the golden nuggets are abound and I can probably speak with you for another two or three podcast episodes because I have so many more questions. You have such experience, but tell the seven hatters, where could they get the book? When could they get the book? How do they reach you? Because I'm sure they're going to be asking. Thank you. Yeah. If this is released before June 13, and if it's not, that's fine too. We're asking everybody to go set an alarm for noon Pacific, June 13. We're doing a bestseller campaign. It's an excuse for a party. Bring everyone together, noon Pacific. We're going to drop the Kindle price to 99 cents because that's the game. Buy 15. Don't buy one book for $15.95. Buy 15 <laughs> Kindle versions. You can gift those to your friends. You send an email, Amazon lets you, and it gets loaded up in their Kindle. It's a Kindle gift. So I'd love Lovely. you to do that. You can go to mouseintheroom.com. You don't have to go to Amazon and look for it. Mouseintheroom.com because we've got some bonuses lined up for you as well for playing. And then if you think it deserves it, come back a day later. Don't do it straight away because you got you to check out the book. Come back a day later and leave a five-star review if you think it deserves it. If not, then that's totally fine. But that's how I'd love you to play, mouseintheroom.com. If you're interested in training and coaching for your team or for you as an executive or business owner, there'll be a link in the navigation to request a coaching session with me. But right now, my energy's all around get the book, start mouse naming. And you, let me, here's a plug for why you want to give this to your friends and your team. You want people around you mouse naming. Yep. Do, you try to do it in isolation, you can do it. I will say the book's that good, you can do it. Way easier when they know exactly what you're talking about and where you're coming from and you can have a new language. Hey, team, 
I just want to name a mouse with you guys. We've got two minutes for that. And they're like, oh, okay, great. What do you got? Well, I've got to design a mouse. I want to do blah, 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 blah. It'll change everything. Mouseintheroom.com. I love it. And I'm going to buy a whole bunch. And when I launch the episode, I'm going to give it out to those who leave a review on your, on your site and, uh, and hopefully a review on The Seven Hats. And they'll get a book wow. on me and I'll get a whole bunch. So thank you so much. I'm here to support you. You're incredible. I had an amazing conversation. And I hope to have you back on the show one day. You have so much to talk about. And I'm just You've excited all- to, to have you as a guest. Thank you. It's been a privilege. I, 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 I got something out of this. I'm like, oh, yes. And I wrote down some lines and I'm going to pull out a couple of clips and uh, we'll link back to your show. Thank you. It's a privilege. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. Let's end today with a show segment that I refer to as what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. I relate to David's mice in the room concept that encourages people to identify and name the things that bother them, whether they are unexpressed desires, unspoken feelings, or unaddressed issues. He uses the metaphor of the elephant in the room to describe big, obvious problems that people tend to ignore and mice that describe more subtle issues that still need to be addressed. The goal is for people to discover and name their mice and then provide a process for disarming the person that they need to have a conversation with so that they can have an open and honest discussion about the issue. By naming and addressing these issues, people can achieve greater confidence, connection, and leadership in their personal and professional lives. You know, I've been in the corporate and entrepreneurial space for almost 30 years, and I can tell you that we would be all better off if our colleagues felt like they could address their mice. Too many times we face political and gossip storms as a result which creates a toxic environment for all of us. I want to thank David once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, And I tip my hat to you.